Hello, and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we'll talk with Claire Varnier-Garnier, who until recently was responsible for equity capital markets at the French government shareholding agency, the APE. Claire comes from a background as an ECM investment banker and was from 2018 to 2022 responsible for the agency's interaction with the equity markets, such as privatizations through IPOs or block offerings or capital raises for companies in the agency's portfolio. In particular, Claire was responsible for the privatization of Française des Jeux, the French gambling monopoly, in 2019 which was one of the largest and most successful IPOs in Europe that year. Claire, we discussed the role of the government shareholding agency, the choices around the structure of the Française de Jure IPO, the retail offering, and the role of institutional investors in the process. Before we start, we'd like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not an investment accommodation, and Amundsen Investment Management and the participants on this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Claire, thank you very much for joining us today. It would be great if you could just give us an introduction about uh, yourself and how you came to work with uh, equity capital markets. Thank you, Per. Thank you for uh, inviting me on the Amundsen uh, IPO stories today. I'm Claire Vernegagne. I'm uh, 39 years old, a happy mom of uh, two little men, uh, Simon and Harry, three and five years old now. I'm French, born and raised in, in Reims uh, near Paris by French parents. So very French. And I spent, as you mentioned, yeah, almost eight years in uh, investment banking, starting my career in the um, equity capital markets team of a French bank, Société Générale in Paris. And then I joined a US bank in London for three years and then went back to Paris at Société Générale, always keeping on working in equity capital markets. And after that, I've joined Euronext. So that was back in 2015, where I've created and launched a new business within this uh, pan-European stock exchange, which consisted in uh, advising, again, corporate, mostly small to, to medium-sized companies, actually, at the time, willing to IPO on uh, Euronext markets. And the business expanded to what is called today Euronext corporate services with uh, quite of a nice success. That's really up to the time when I joined the APE back in uh, 2018. The, your role at the um, government shareholding agency, the French uh, Agence de Participation de l'État, uh, it's quite interesting because it's something that exists in quite a lot of European countries, but maybe not so much uh, in the US. Can you tell us a bit more about the, the role of the government shareholding agency in France? The um, Agence de Participation de l'État, or APE, the French State Shareholding Agency, is the agency that assumes the role of the French government as a shareholder in a French publicly owned company and which sits under the uh, authority of the Minister for the Economy and, and Finance. So when I joined the APE in 2018, I was in charge of what we call the finance and capital markets division there, which role was to work on and execute all types of transactions where the share capital of portfolio companies was affected in one way or another. 
And if you look at, I mean, especially the U.S. example, where this is not common at all, why do you think there's such a different approach to government ownership of companies across different countries? Well, I think it's due to a different approach of the role of the state in the overall economic system. I'd say clearly across uh, history, right? Where in the U.S. you have more of a liberalized um, economy where the state doesn't have at all the same uh, weight into the share capital of companies. Top markets are, you know, a much more developed way of raising capital. You have a very, very strong institutional investor base, which we also have in Europe, but in the States, it's a way of funding companies that is, per se, the approach from existing shareholders prior to being listed and to management team to grow the company over time. So in that, in that sense, in France in particular, but in Europe overall, the system is different. And one of the reasons as well for that in terms of the um, institutional investor base that is so big and play an important role in the U.S. is the presence of pension funds, which is something we, unfortunately, I would say for this kind of objective, we don't have in France or in some other countries of Europe, most of them actually. Um, so this is, for me, one of the main uh, explanations of that difference. So you could actually say that government ownership is necessary because there is not the same pension system to hold equities over the long term, in a sense. Exactly. You have another way of having a long-term stable shareholder and it's the state. And it's not only the APE, by the way. You have the CDC, the Caisse des Dépôts et Consignations, BPI France, BPI, which also plays a very important role in financing the economic system of enterprises more onto the small to medium-sized enterprise in the country. So all of that, I'd say the word is not right, but compensate for not having those pension funds. And so this brings us to the privatization of uh, Française des Jeux, uh, which we're going to spend a bit more time on in uh, November 2019. Can you tell us a bit on the specific considerations around the Française des Jeux privatization? Yes. As part of this privatization program, during which we had a number of debates in the French parliament, right, almost over the course of more than a year, actually, in between uh, 2018 and 2019, there was the willingness to privatize MDG. DJ, we talked about it in terms of the reason why we wanted to do that. But there was also considerations around providing Aéroport de Paris. And then the discussion that we had was what kind of privatization would that be? How would we reduce the stake into the company? So in parallel of the legislative process to get approval for privatizing the assets, we started thinking and reflecting on how such operation would be held in terms of the office structure itself, the size of the transaction, how much of the company would the stake sell, what would be the targeted proceeds, the um, remaining holding of the state in the company, what would be the preferred track to optimize valuation? Would it be an IPO or trade sale, a sell to a strategic partner, to private equity? All those questions, right, would be talked about in the EP. I wanted to talk a bit about the process around the IPO because uh, you were responsible for the transaction from the state side. So, of course, you were involved in the entire process from, as you said, the preparation, the legislative side, the selection of advisors and the preparing of the company from being almost a government entity to being an independent public company. And of course, you, you worked with some uh, investment banks on the way, who, as usual in IPOs. 
Uh, and coming from that side as well, I'm sure you were able to select them quite well. And when you saw the pitches from the investment bankers, what ended up driving the selection of the advisors you worked with? What was important to us for the selection of the bank, you know, the main criteria that we had were obviously the understandings of APJ's business model and potential for growth, the equity story and the way the bank were able to thoroughly understand it, but position it as well, valuation, each bank's placement capabilities towards institutional investors, not only in France, but uh, all around the globe was very important, but also the and their capabilities for some of them, mostly the French banks, obviously, their capabilities to address uh, French uh, retail demand through retail networks, as we knew we wanted a large retail offering. Some other important criteria were precedent transactions each bank worked on and so forth. So there were a number of, of things we considered and we ranked all candidates based on each of the criteria that I've just mentioned. So we could make a, I'd say, discipline selection and really structure the right setup considering the nature of the transaction and the way we wanted to, you know, have this IPO happen with both institutional trench, but also a retail trench. Uh, it was definitely a very large transaction, right? Even for today, I don't think in this environment right now, it would be possible to execute a 1.8 billion euro transaction. But it's very interesting that 75% of the institutional demand actually came from non-French investors. So it was uh, still very important to get the story out on the road, even though it was a very well-known company in France, right? Yes, we were surprised on the outside, to be honest. They're thinking, you know, French state, French company, um, French stakeholders, uh, most of the uh, story thinking that it would be mostly a French institutional placement, right? And it was not the case because, again, we have this ability to set up a banking syndicate where each one of them would add to this international reach of the investors. And the story, which is unique, right, in the gaming and gambling sector, was very attractive to the market. Again, not going to sell it today, but resilient business model, regulatory environment that was actually uh, set up, uh, reinforced as part of the the privatization process by the state, clear to the market, securing both prospects of FDJ, but of the overall sector in France, potential for M&A consolidation, the willingness and the management team did a great job into convincing that they would be able to expand internationally FDJ, which is what they, they did, right, since the IPO, where all criteria that were so attractive to investors that were not only French and be exposed to, to the French market at the time of this transaction was also something that was very positive for the global equity market, where France was well positioned in terms of, uh, you know, economical dynamism, and this wave of privatization was part of the demonstration of that. So it was more FDJ, of course, quality of the asset, quality of the management team, so an overall economic regulatory environment that was very supportive for the international market to get into the deal. And as part of the roadshow, of course, you interacted and the company interacted with uh, most of the top institutional investors in Europe, some outside Europe. 
Did you feel that these investor touch points helped you in the process, especially in terms of the pricing? And who was the most useful in a sense? Was it local investors, the global sector specialists? How do you kind of see the institutional investor interaction there? Ahead of the formal launch of the FDK transaction, i.e. well ahead of the registration documents being approved by the French AMF, At the APE, we did do a roadshow, right? It was in 2019, which was also the opportunity to introduce the agency to national, but also international investors who did not know us very well to explain the aim of the French government's privatization program, to present the assets that we were contemplating to sell at the time, the potential timing of the transactions, the way we would uh, sell them and so on. It was a very interesting exercise whereby we gathered direct but very preliminary, right, at the time, feedback from investors who had not really started studying the asset itself. And for instance, many of them told us that the IPO route was a good one to privatize FDJ and that they would like to, to be involved into the process when it's uh, formally launched. Then we discussed with, again, many investors during the formal process. But most importantly to me, we did it in close coordination with the management team. It was up to FDJ's senior management team to have as many interactions as possible with investors and explain to them the company's strategy the details, the share, the financial guidance, explain how the group ESG roadmap, etc. So as far as the AP is concerned, the main uh, questions I had from investors were obviously, as you mentioned, on valuation expectations. There were many questions also on the new regulatory environment, which we set up, and its stability over time. Investors wanted to know if the state would remain a strategic core shareholder in the long term, with our views on the government. What would it mean in terms of the board structure and composition? There were all these questions were the main ones, and it was, for us, as a selling shareholder, very useful, because it allowed us to be provided with Uh, feedback along the way, making sure that we would not do something that the market would have rejected in some way or another. And and honestly, yes, quality of the interactions with and and feedback gathered from investors varies a lot from uh, one to another. All buckets of demand are important, right? We talked about it earlier. So it's not about what kind of investors would be much more important to have a successful transaction, but Some of them are more helpful than others, allowing stakeholders to fine-tune the story, the structure of the transaction to set the valuation range. One particularity of the Française des Jeux IPO was the very strong retail interest. Of course, it was a well-known brand, but uh, also 40% of the transaction was actually allocated to French retail investors. With uh, a specific structure, you had an additional discount on price and some bonus shares for longer holding periods. So I haven't actually seen this in any other transaction, so I'm interested in hearing how you came up with this uh, setup. Yes, as I said, 40% of the uh, 1.9 billion transaction was allocated to retail investors, which is well above the standard 10% retail tranche that you have in French IPO. This was due to the specificities of this deal, the privatization first, right? 
not just an IPO of an iconic company, well-known. So again, I said it earlier, but we wanted to attract retail investors and attract them genuinely. <laughs> you have to demonstrate that the size of the transaction that would be allocated to them would be sizable. And it was not the theoretical uh, willingness to have them in. We reserved a large part of this deal to retail demand and allocation. So the way we thought about it, and in order to enhance this retail demand, to drive attention to retail investors, we did several things. We actually did three things together with, with the company, obviously. And the first one was to have a very strong communication plan on the transaction involving also the, I said it earlier, but the Travis Bank's retail networks. It's not about placing the shares. We can't do that anymore. But, you know, making their clients aware, be able to respond to their question around this offering. And so we, at the state level, also engaged into a very strong communication plan around the privatization program overall, but the FDJ transactions itself. We did mobilize the Minister of Finance, the government overall, of course, the head of the APE at the time, the whole team, and the company management itself was more than engaged into that plan. And they did a really good job building French citizens' awareness around this deal. Then second lever that we had to drive attention was to offer a discount on the IPO price set by institutional demand and dedicated to retail investors. We offered a 2% discount on the final IPO price for institutional, which was of 19 euros and 90 cents. And the price for retail investors was 19 euros and 50 cents per share. So that was to say, if you come in to the deal, then it would be more attractive to view whether retail investors than it is for the market, i.e. potentially more educated players into this kind of transaction. So we want you to come back with a message, obviously. And the third thing that we did again here to attract demand was to commit into remitting an additional share for each tranche of 10 shares acquired by a retail shareholder at the time of the IPO, provided that the shares would be held for at least 18 months from the pricing of actually settlement and delivery of the offering. And as I said, the offering was very large for a European IPO, especially of a mid-cap company. The government sold down 52% of the company in the transaction, which again is quite a large free float compared to the usual for that size of a company. How did you end up pricing the IPO? Because, of course, you as a seller, you were quite price sensitive. You wanted to get the right price, but at the same time, you wanted the IPO to work out well. So uh, how did you end up doing that? not going to repeat how important was the interactions and, and feedback from investors that we gathered along the way. You know, we analyzed more than, it was a bit crazy, more than 1,500 pieces of feedback during a pre-marketing on this transaction. And in the various discussion, we had our advisors, FDJ's management team to set up the valuation range and then the price of the deal. We wanted to stake, obviously, to be fully and highly valued at IPO, while short the company deliver 
on its plan, keeping up fight for share price appreciation in the medium to hopefully the long term. So I think this is where we did a very good job with all parties involved. And again, investors' feedback was critical out of it to really have the right balance, right, in valuing fully the state stake, but also making sure there was potential for growth in terms of the, uh, the share price performance. Again, provided the company would deliver on all the, the guidance, not only the financial guidance, but all the growth prospects that they explained they would do to the market. And at the end of the day, the price of an IPO is, as I said earlier, the match in between demand and, and supply rights of shares. We were many times oversubscribed in these transactions. As you know, the institutional trench was more than eight times, almost nine times oversubscribed, more than two times oversubscribed for the retail trench. So there was no discussion when we tried the deal that it would price at the higher end of the valuation range that we set. And it was an impressive oversubscription rate in a very positive capital markets environment when we tried the deal. But we are, we are not thinking, oh, God, this level of subscription, it reveals that maybe, you know, the price is not high enough. So we consider that we were not in that uh, spirit at all because we knew the circumstances were quite positive. We knew the institutional trench was squeezed up a little bit by the size of the retail offer. We knew all those parameters. So we thought that at the end of the day, pricing this deal, the price we did at the high end of the valuation range would be what we thought would be the most efficient, the right word, but balanced uh, pricing for us as a selling shareholders, but for the company as well to manage and to be able to manage the company as a listed company in the long term, not in the short term. Yes, because as you say, it's a beginning, right? So you want to make sure that the company's investors stick around for a long time. And that's what you ended up doing because, of course, there was a 14% pop, if you say, on, on day one. But in reality, at the end of the year, you were plus 20% from the IPO price. And now, three years later, it's a plus 100%. So anybody who actually bought during the months after the IPO did very well over the long term. Yes, and with a good share price performance on day one, but not fairly good given the level of association we had. Some people wanted to buy more shares in the market, and that's fair. That's uh, that's actually very good. And then the share price appreciation came over time, right? Over the life of the company, their communication on the way they delivered the plan. And COVID-19 showed and revealed and confirmed the market that this company was so resilient that yeah, it didn't you know, prevent the, the share price from keeping its uh, positive evolution. Of course, it's been impacted, but nothing to do with other listed companies in other much more affected sectors at that time. So it was very uh, sound share price performance over the past three years. It, it's one of the things myself, but I think everyone that we're involved in the transaction is uh, very proud of. Thanks. And I just want to step back a bit and talk about the IPO product in general. You know, we see a lot of defiance versus the IPO product with the challenge in getting IPOs executed. 
on the one hand, you sort of have the sellers who say that uh, the institutional investor landscape is not good enough. And then the investors we talk to, a lot of them are quite concerned about IPOs because they say, well, there's not enough information. I don't really have enough time to analyze the company. And they're always a bit worried that the price is not necessarily in their favor. So Fosses uh, Digio worked out very well, but there's uh, some others that have not worked out well. How do you think we can bring more institutional capital to enable the success of IPOs in Europe? Is there anything that should change or evolve? It's a good question. You would uh, be able to add to that question yourself as an institutional investor, but and Euronext and the French Treasury and all parties involved into having a deeper, more efficient capital market in France and Europe overall would be keen to discuss that. But my view is the uh, IPO process as it is today is a low for intense engagement in between companies, shareholders, that want to IPO an asset and a management team of a company and potential investors, institutional investors, well ahead actually of the IPO process itself. So the argument of investors saying, I don't have the time to make myself fully aware of everything around the company, I don't buy this one very much, especially by the largest ones and the ones that are expected in advance. It can engage very early on to knowing as much as you need around the company and the IPO process overall, make it possible to assess the uh, valuation levers of the company. Now, as I said before, you have the seller's expectations around pricing that needs to be managed, I guess, during the time of the preparation of the transaction. And bankers, they play the banks, they play an important role in that, right? Because they are a sometimes pushing for the highest possible price in the short term, but this is not what we necessarily want to have to, again, allow for some share price appreciation over time once the company is listed. So I think every stakeholder play an important role in having some efficient, deeper equity capital market for IPOs in Europe that would work well i.e. again setting shareholders, advisors and the bank, but also institutional investors who should also give more information as possible to the selling shareholders so that we can see really what are the expectations of the market regarding pricing. And I think one of the important parameters when you have a secondary offering, i.e. selling shareholders, the assessment of this most of the time, strategic shareholder willing to remain a shareholder, an important size in the long run, because obviously it's not the same as having a transaction where you have a selling shareholder that is not there anymore. So price maximization at the IPO would clearly be there and transaction where the selling shareholders remain so for the long run, even though, of course, it would not be as sizable as it was the IPO. So those, all those discussions are important to allow for these transactions to go well. And then you have the questions of the investor base. We talked a little bit about it earlier. We don't have pension funds. It's not the same uh, on capital markets environment in Europe versus the US in that sense that it's not the same way companies would finance themselves thinking straight away of capital markets. So that's, I think, should evolve. And it's up to the authorities, government, European actions to 
develop capital markets. They're working on it, obviously. <laughs> and it's also some evolution, which I think is happening, right? The French tech, everything being France has done in the space is impressive to, you know, bring very innovative, growing companies reaching the size would be able to IPO in the most positive conditions. And now it's up to management teams to take the risks. And that's kind of a mindset evolution too that, you know, needs to, I'd say, be spurred. And to finish off, were there any fun facts from the IPO process of Francaise de Jeux you wanted to share with us? Oh, I have so many uh, anecdotes. And I would need an disclosure agreement from DJ's management team to share a lot of them. But if I recall the roadshow we did on the AP side in London back in spring 2019, you know when you're working for the French state, when you are the French state going to a foreign country, you think everyone knows you, obviously, the APE, by taking into account uh, listed, but there's some non-listed companies of the portfolio. We have more than 200 billion euros portfolio value, so, you know, we are well-known, uh, proud of it, and so on and so forth. And we discussed, we had our meeting with institutional investors, and one of them was funny, I remember that. Well, I started the conversation, it was with the head of the AP at the time, myself and a couple of other colleagues. And he was clearly asking, who are you? And so we were saying, oh, we have the AP, very large, you know, portfolio, public portfolio manager for the French government, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, oh, yeah, that's uh, interesting. You know, I'm uh, actually myself uh, dealing with more than one trillion and 500 billion euros set under management. I think you're a very nice institution. I'm very happy to meet you. And that was, that was very funny because it was it clearly put things into a, into perspective, right? And it was actually helpful for us to understand that needed to promote this privatization, the IT itself, in a way to, to make it Thank you very much, uh, Claire, for this discussion. It was very interesting. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you again, Pierre, for uh, inviting me. It was very, very interesting. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we'll host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn more from their experience, like from Claire today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you would like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com. 